We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to The Interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. Today, we're going to discuss something that isn't about coronavirus. In fact, with COVID dominating the news, we thought a foray into another topic would be a refreshing change. So for today, we will be discussing the vanishing public intellectual. With so much news on COVID, many people have taken to social media and online news sites to, per- to platform their views. But who gets given airtime and why? What actually qualifies them? So I'm here with Chandra Nair, founder of GIFT, and we're going to be discussing this today. So first of all, Chandra, what actually is a public intellectual? Well, thank you, Ron. Um, I mean, there are many uh, definitions of the public intellectual, but at the most basic, I suppose one could say the public intellectual is an individual who, uh, at a particular time, uh, challenging times, is willing to essentially speak uh, truth to power. So that is the most simplest form. So that would be a public intellectual. Um, The public intellectual is someone who then also does other things, uh, who is not just uh, willing to speak truth to power, but is also willing to take on what is passed off uh, as uh, sanitized scholarship. Thoughts and ideas that are given credibility but have actually no rooting in rigor, etc. Things that come to mind would be some of the stuff taught at business schools around the role of business and society. So they are willing to essentially uh, take the mask off, uh, things masquerading as scholarship, which are essentially nothing of that sort. Others would be people who are willing to essentially set the moral tone, set what the ethical standards should be in terms of societal expectations of community leaders, business, etc., or within the communities themselves. Um, they set that tone. They ask the difficult questions. But uh, one important feature of the public intellectual is a sense of fearlessness uh, and an ability to essentially get um, the public and uh, others to essentially ponder things that they don't often think about. That is never easy. A public intellectual is not necessarily one who just confronts political elites in a country where perhaps the dangers of that sort of challenge uh, can be profound, but it can be someone who takes on mainstream economists um, Mm. who are a new tyranny, as we all know, depending on where you stand. It could be someone who is willing to take on uh, this idea that democracy is the panacea for our times. How many people like that do you know? Um, so that's the public intellectual, and one of the reasons I'm, I've written a piece, which I'm hoping to publish soon, is that I find that for a while, the public intellectual was seen as something that is peculiar and a great uh, contribution or eventually an attribute of liberal democratic societies. That the public intellectual didn't exist elsewhere, and I hope in this conversation we can get into the the bit more the details of the public intellectual also fits into the political systems of different uh, societies. It's no point being extremely honest, trying to change your society, but within within a country in which the consequences might be high. So then the public intellectual in that 
uh, in that area, uh, space which seek to shape societies differently. And then the last point I make in that, in, but in the West, over the, especially in the last uh, hundred years or so, the public intellectual has been lionized as someone who can take on authority. But typically in the West, there are no consequences for that, and there are many reasons for that, not because those societies are necessarily more um, advanced, but I would say advanced from the point of view of having the privilege of being able to accommodate noise, um, be it a public intellectual or others. In other societies, given their history, etc., they might not at that point be able to uh, endear the noise of disruptors in that way because the con social consequences will mm -hmm. be very high. So those are the things that um, I think uh, uh, I'm interested in exploring and the point that uh, I think we can go into a bit further here is my argument that uh, the vanishing public intellectual in the Western media for me is a very interesting phenomenon too. So if you said today, you know, who are the most leading public intellectuals in the United States, you'd be hard pressed. And uh, people listening to this should not confuse public intellectuals with pundits on TV uh, who have an opinion about every, everything. And if I asked you who are the leading public intellectuals in the UK, I think you'd be hard pressed to name me. Uh, any who have global significance or who are not tethered to some institution that their opinions are, are diluted in some yeah, way. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of my next question is what differentiates a public intellectual from a commentator, from someone in Western media who will often speak about either their own issues or global issues? Well, one of the, one of the, the, the distinguishing features is uh, essentially uh, independence, mm. right? Uh, and I, uh, I've often said one of the scarcest commodities of our times is intellectual honesty. Uh, one of the most common commodities is intellectual dishonesty. It pervades uh, everything we saw, see on media, and this is not an anti-media uh, position I'm taking. I mm. think media has a very important role to play. Unfortunately, it's not playing that role. It's, it's essentially become captive to economic interests, right? So the public intellectual is someone who is not someone on TV saying what the host and anchor wants them to say or what they're chosen to say because there's a particularly captive audience out there. I think the public intellectual is someone who is agnostic to who the audience is but is extremely committed to what they believe are the facts and their arguments. You may disagree with them, we might even disagree with some of the way they're saying certain things, but the public intellectual is given that space. My argument is that space for that public intellectual is becoming very narrow and I'm really interested that the so-called global liberal media which supposed to, purports to promote uh, freedom of speech, etc., is essentially a fraud because if you look at the glo leading global media, we can talk about why they are mainly Western, uh, uh, English-driven, and there's that whole tyranny, but they are the ones at this time in our history dominate the global space. You do not listen to something from Radio Mongolia, nor do you even listen, sadly, to something from NHK TV, the English yeah. version. It doesn't have the dominance. But uh, CNN, BBC, and all of those, they get piped into everything, into your mobile device, etc. So that's the space. But those very powerful players seem to have themselves retreated 
from offering a space to the public intellectual. And the question is essentially uh, twofold. One, uh, political ideological leanings, and of course the business of the business of media, and therefore captive to certain audiences, interests of owners, etc. And that does not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's not just something Rupert Murdoch does. I mean, we know those who are extremely partisan, whether it's the Fox TV in the US, etc. But it's even you know the more respectable ones, and uh, even the BBC, I think, has uh, succumbed slowly, maybe not consciously, to this inability to have the brutal and honest truth and give the space for the public intellectual. So it sounds like the public intellectual is someone who may have dissenting views, or at least views that they really fully believe in. And in our sanitized global media or Western media, that's not something that is wants to be portrayed or accepted within the space. You said that space is declining. So there are plenty of people with these ideas and mm. convictions, mm. but they're not given a platform to actually like uh, profess their ideas. Yeah. Now, how does that compare then to the developing world? What, what are the differences there? Yeah. So I think uh, it's important to not uh, categorize the, uh, characterize the public intellectual as simply dissent. Mm, sure. Uh, because dissent has an element of defining someone as simply angry, uh, protest, anti-establishment. I think the public intellectual, and that's why the word public, ha is and a good one, uh, is someone who is essentially um, able to communicate uh, ideas uh, based on, of course, deep knowledge, readings, etc., in a way that reflect uh, the untouchable issues, or the ones that the majority of people don't know, about or the elites uh, establishments refuse to acknowledge and so there's a whole level of research curiosity and uh, uh, knowledge that comes into it so it's not dissent for the sake of mm. dissent that's a very different thing um, so the the public intellectual ha has a different role and they are driven by this conviction that they have something to add but it's not just polemic, it's based on uh, deep thought, etc. So these are very highly respected people. Now, your question was, um, what about the rest of the world? So it's, it's very interesting as well. So if you then look at a country, say, like India, there are quite a lot of public intellectuals, uh, partly because India is democratic and very messy. But India's democracy has also ensured that for the last 70 years, the consequences on a public intellectual for speaking out of the government uh, was not dire. Because India was so messy, uh, a lot of messiness could be accommodated, right? And, and there is, I suppose, also acknowledgement that the pluralistic society in India is, was tolerant of that, but the state was also tolerant. Mm was at the same time uh, not being effective. But in recent years, there are those who will argue that this has changed. But India has quite a lot of good public intellectuals uh, who speak up. Now, what's interesting to me is that some of them have an international reputation. And what is even more uh, intriguing is how they are being lionized by the international media. So, you know, with regard to COVID, for instance, about three weeks ago, the Financial Times uh, offered uh, a real amount of, a uh, massive amount of real estate on its weekend uh, edition to the Indian uh, author and activist Arundhati Roy, uh, mm. who wrote uh, 
a scathing indictment of essentially the Indian system, while at the same time taking on <clears throat> some of the failings of the global order, etc., etc. Now it was interesting that the uh, the new the, the FT would give that to an Indian, but not give that uh, similar sort of opportunity from anyone in the West to talk, for instance, about the failings or the complete collapse of the uh, the the system in the United States in, 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 in relation to the, the pandemic. So my argument there is that um, uh, the global media, which are so dominant, are very, uh, uh, are very uh, uh, prone to allowing intellectuals from what I would call the developing world to shed light on the inadequacies of their systems, um, not threaten the, the Western order too, too much, and then at the same time, therefore, burnish their credentials, both the, the writer, the activist, as well as the publication, as essentially being open, uh, open to radical ideas, revolutionary thought, etc., without essentially cutting deep into their own societies. So it's typically like that. The Indian public intellectual has a global, uh, or, the, or the other Asian or African public intellectual has a global reputation, uh, is rarely that well known within their own countries. Uh, and that, of course, is a failing of the media within their own countries as, as well. So that really becomes uh, an issue. And I think one of the things um, I think you're hinting at then is um, how does someone who's a public intellectual, we mentioned India as a place where there is some space because mm. of the in a way the chaos of the space and the ability of this huge country to tolerate that because uh, in, in a way it's also suggested the public intellectual while prominent at a, at, a, at a media level has no policy impact. So Arundhati Roy, uh, as smart as she is, has no policy impact. The policy imp implications of a good public intellectual should not be uh, discarded. So then might, you might say, well, what about China? And then there is that discussion that we should be having. So in, in, in a classic Western worldview, it would, it would suggest that China, because it is a single party state and non, not a democratic in the Western tradition, and we can argue about my views about why I think China is more democratic than India, uh, the, uh, that there can't be any public intellectuals in China. I think this would be a very, very, uh, a naive and silly way to think about it. We so we have to appreciate that China is a four five thousand year civilization. It has a very different political political system. Uh, it has done a great. It's advanced. Uh, you know, it's most. Uh, it is the best example of human improvement in the last fifty years, etc. But it's very different politically. Uh, then, but if you then apply the Western s standard of what a public intellectual is, which I've already suggested actually doesn't apply in the West because where are those public intellectuals? Because there's no space. There's no space. And it's actually taken away from them. Then you would say China has no s space for public intellectuals and it act actually um, actively represses them. But I would argue that if you're a Chinese intellectual, and let's at least accept that there are thousands of them, very, very smart people, they then understand, and in their tradition, confrontation is not necessarily the way in which you get new ideas forward. So in the Western tradition, it might be confrontation, and I did say the public intellectual 
is typically one who speaks truth to power. Mm. But it does not necessarily only be defined by that. So the Chinese system, uh, the public intellectual becomes one who essentially understands the, conf the constraints of the system within which uh, the, the, the space to speak, create disruption is not granted because the consequences are too high. Mm. Therefore then, the state uh, and the media provides different opportunities. But the individual, the public intellectual in China, then has to decide how they work within that space. Now, this is an idea that I think, uh, I'm not going to suggest I have the last word on, but it's an idea like I pe like people to think, because it's so naive and simple to argue, oh, China is repressive, no public intellectuals. Uh, in Nigeria, there is a strong military-led government, etc., although democratically elected, they can't. Indonesia, there's no public intellectuals. Uh, this, this would be very silly. So the, the really the interesting thing to see is how does the public intellectual survive in different um, economic and political systems? Mm. So my starting premise was the most advanced so-called free world has actually um, uh, squ almost squashed the public intellectual, mainly driven through the economic realities and ownerships of the media, which is typically their platform, that's TV, radio, publications. In the developing world, I've talked about that uh, the need for the public intellectual to engage within the system to bring about policy change as the country develops away from, uh, 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 not away from, develops where the space becomes a, a slightly different space, but at this stage there is the commit, there is the obligation of the public intellectual to help build that country, and and just protests and being a dissident while lionized in the Western media uh, is not necessarily the way. So this is a longer conversation we should have. But it's too easy to say if not if they're not protesting and they're not going to jail, then there can't be any public intellectuals. Well, try you know try putting your family at risk uh, because you want to be a hero sure, in the Western media, sure. and that has become far too much the the case in terms of how people in the developing world are looked at and either dismissed as not radical enough, not standing up, or wow, you're a dissident. Let's give you a Nobel Prize. Yeah. So there's. You're saying that the space in the West is no longer there. It's been it's been booted out. Or it's been squashed. castrated yeah. by essentially the sanitization of open dialogue, uh, but masquerading through pundits and op-ed mm. editors who are essentially part of the chattering classes. And we, well, the West then will, Western media will often then select certain certain um, speakers from from developing world countries and use them as a, as a blanket representation of the, the public intellectuals in that country. That's right. But actually the realities of being a public intellectual in, in non-Western countries is more real. There's a real risk of That's causing right. social unrest. Right. And so it's or, even a much more difficult personal task. Personal risk even. Yeah, yeah, there's a much more difficult task. So we need to appreciate the difficulty of their task and then find out how they're operating. There are no medals for going to jail or risking your family. Yet, of course, you can be on the front cover of Time magazine for being the dissident from mm. China, Nigeria, etc. But, you know, that, uh, that wins us nothing. So that's a different thing. Now, you know, if you, but if you come back to the West, and particularly in this, uh, coming back a bit to the COVID thing, the United States is in crisis. One of the crises, uh, one of the things that's shown up 
is essentially the fact that the majority of people falling, uh, uh, who are dying from this are black and Hispanic groups. We all know that race is an issue. We all know that systemic racism is part and parcel. But the world is sort of, the Western world's kind of ignored it as, you know, it's something happens and then we'll be outraged for two days when some black kid gets killed. But it's systemic. This has shown that why is it? And there are a huge amount of reasons. Now, US media has started to talk about it. Now, I'll just talk, for instance, you know, CNN can't run away from it, liberal media, they have to pretend that they do care about it. Maybe pretend's a harsh word, but they have to cover it, they have to show concern. And I think it was last weekend, they had a show, one hour show about um, discussing the, this issue of why black people and really trying to dig deep. Guess who was on the show? No public intellectuals, no black people of uh, real intellectual stature. Uh, who would they be? I mean, one might be the young author, uh, Tai Niheshi Coates. Mm. Uh, no. Well, who do they have? Basketball players, Snoop Dogg, uh, uh, and that, that's it. The black man and black person is still an athlete, uh, a rap star, and then some pseudo-intellectual masquerading, but no one of real depth, no one like of the stature of Tanya Hishikos, or even going back to a Malcolm X. Mm. Because the Malcolm X narrative was tearing it down. You may not like it, but that's the role of the public intellectual. And a free society is meant to allow that discourse to take place. Nothing that Malcolm X said uh, 30, 40 years ago is untrue. But it was very hard to listen yeah. to. But it's just as relevant today. There is no person talking about there's no white intellectual in the USA but the few blacks who would another one's called Brian Stevenson they don't get them on TV so that's the sanitization of that whole whole thing then even you know just looking at the Senate let's looking at the discussion today about essentially the USA blaming China uh, and it's terrible what's happening by the way no public intellectual in the West has stood up and said, this is a lie. If they are, they're on the fringe, but you won't see them on BBC. So BBC is not prepared to bring on some of the best public intellectuals from the UK and say, this is bad, isn't it? What is happening? Is this racist? Is this xenophobia? Yeah. Does it have roots in history? No, because they don't want to go there. No, the question is, do these public intellectuals exist in the West? who are willing to stand up and say, blaming China is the same as what happened three, 400 years ago. It's racist and xenophobic. It is the same mindset that essentially allow Western society to look down on other societies, etc. And say, for instance, well, no one blamed the United States for HIV. No one blamed the United States and said they covered it up for, you know, almost a year. And no one should. No one should, but there is no conversation like that. So that's the point I'm trying to make. And I think finally in the developing world, um, we need public, public intellectuals. My point is, they should not be, uh, they should not be sort of uh, you know, scrubbed away, but they should not be stupid and go to jail only mm. and seek notoriety in the Western media. They need to find a way to work within the societies and that's hard work. Standing up in so-called free societies and yelling and screaming 
is okay. The public intellectuals don't yell and scream, but to point things out is a very important tradition, but it's easier. But what I'm arguing is even in Western societies, these, these, these people are now becoming rare, uh, you know, ra uh, rarities. And that's a discussion that uh, I hope uh, this podcast will get people into thinking. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Trundran. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. However, if you are interested in the Interruption Podcast and Gift, you can find us at www.global-inst.com. Good health to everyone tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. We will turn you now to your regularly scheduled program. No, sir.